Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programs and achieve best practice. I feel very privileged to be able to welcome so many amazing guests onto this show and chat to them about their work and Despite the ongoing challenges faced by the world, 2022 gave us another round of great guests and episodes full of excellent advice, insights, and experiences. You might have seen that on social media for each show, we pull out a 30 to 45 second snippet and turn it into a video to help whet your appetite for the episode. As such, and as we do each year, we've gone back and pulled out the full question and answer relating to that snippet and created a best of show for you. Hi, I'm Daniel Loyston, host of Inside Sponsorship, and you're listening to episode 117, brought to you by Core Software. And it's great to have you listening to the show, no matter where you are in the world or what your connection is with the sponsorship industry, and I trust you are well. I hope that 2022 was a great year for you and that this episode helps set you up and inspires you for an amazing 2023. But before we dive into the show, I have a few shout-outs. Those that are regular listeners will know I get very excited about giving shout-outs. So the first one goes out to Jack Withenshaw in London, and Jack is from Airspeeder, where he is the co-founder and chief operating officer. And Airspeeder is the world's first premium EVTOL racing league. EVOTL stands for Electric Vehicle Takeoff and Landing, and Jack connected with me on LinkedIn. And so you should definitely go and check out Airspeeder com. It looks amazing. Thanks for connecting, Jack. Rob March, owner and director at RPM Consultancy Services in Liverpool, England, connected on LinkedIn also and wrote, I've been listening to the podcast for a while and really enjoyed the last episode with you and Adam Ferrier. I worked in sports slash venue partnerships in the UK for over 20 years. It'd be great to connect. Well, Rob, consider yourself connected. Thanks for reaching out and glad you are enjoying the show. Yes, Adam is a real character and a great guy. And we actually had a, a great chat both before and after hitting the record button. And I certainly enjoyed having him on the show. Rob also tagged me on a post on LinkedIn by Matt Benison, also from London. And Matt is Group Partnerships Manager at Arena Racing Company, the UK's largest horse racing group. Matt just posted on LinkedIn, helping spread the good word about the show. So I really appreciate that, Matt. And great to hear that the show really does hit the mark for you. I love hearing that. Connecting with great sponsorship people, it's a real highlight of looking after this show, but it is also great to meet people in person when I travel, and I did travel to England in August and had arranged a small catch-up of London-based podcast guests from over the years, but a train and underground strike killed that idea, making it just too hard for people to get around the city. However, I just want to give a special mention, a special shout out to Patrick Collins, founder at Leap Fox from episode 106, who was able to still get out and catch up with me. And we enjoyed a nice dinner and a chat and a few drinks. And Pat, and I look forward to doing that again when I visit London. Let's jump into the show, the best of 2022. In episode 105, I walked through Core's white paper on storytelling in sponsorship. Grant McFadden, who at the time of writing was GM Corporate Partnerships at the Canterbury Banks Down Bulldogs Rugby League Club in Australia, spoke about storytelling's ability. Storytelling is the ability to draw your client in and allow them to feel an emotional connection through stories about the club's history and current day activities. It's a concept we often utilise. On more than one occasion and with different brands I've worked for, the ability to explain the history and how the brand has come from where they first began to where they are now resonate with so many businesses. 
Every person and every business has a story to tell. It's a connection you can make with your prospective sponsor through telling your brand story that allows them to feel emotionally connected. A key element to creating a successful story is in telling the truth and evoking an honest and emotional response that encourages a real, tangible connection with the partner. When selling sponsorships, it is vital there is passion, belief, knowledge and understanding for your partner's own objectives. Sven Glor, Global Sponsorship Manager at HSBC, was also quoted in the Storytelling Sponsorship White Paper. It is vital that we're able to align our brand messaging within every sponsorship activation. For us, storytelling is one of the most crucial ingredients in ensuring that message really resonates and allows us to make stronger, longer-lasting connections with our potential customers. And so we spend a great deal of time at communicating our story and only partner with those that share and promote the same values as we do. So if it doesn't make sense to us, it certainly won't make sense to our customers. Identifying with customers through our partnership activations is only possible through clear and concise storytelling. And it's vital not only because we speak to millions of people around the world daily, but because of the growing number of ways they interact with our brand are an increasing array of mediums. All in all, it means the role of storytelling has become more important than ever before. And finally, from the storytelling in sponsorship white paper, Stuart Ramsey, who at the time was head of brand partnerships for the British Olympic Association, joined us. Being able to tell a story through reporting is absolutely vital, and this is where so many miss the mark. The reporting phase offers the best opportunity in the partnership lifecycle to demonstrate the value of rights holders are able to generate. It provides an opportunity to go beyond the tangible figures and showcase the intangible benefits the partnership has created. In reporting, brands will get a very real sense of whether they are receiving more value than they are paying for, which in that value transfer is paramount. Re-establishing the brand story of how partnership can deliver a greater value than the price the rights were bought for can't be done through simple, generic reporting. We have to go way beyond identifying the deliverables agreed upon. It's here where we can show personality, the added value and the mutual benefits which have been created. Reporting doesn't have to be confined to PowerPoint. Engage the client, utilise your talent and demonstrate what your partnership has that no other possibly could. In episode 106, Patrick Collins, founder at LeapFox, took us inside eSports sponsorship. In such a fast-paced environment, you learn so much really quickly. You spent two and a half years at Excel. What sort of myths are there still around eSports that probably need to be dispelled? There's plenty. I think, you know, the first that comes to mind is around the audience and the and the, and the professional players themselves. You know, there's, there's a stereotype of a gamer, um, which is probably um, still present with a, with a lot of people. But actually, you know, there's so many sort of engaging, you know, players and, 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 and fans and members of the community that it's, it's actually not what a lot of people think. So breaking that down. Is you know you know was a big part of my job and will be a big part of what I'm going to be doing moving forward and and also you know the education of you know it's not you know esports is not one thing it's like talking about sport you know every you know every game and title has a slightly different audience and demographic as we kind of touched upon earlier on but you know going back to some of the players you know you've got some of these personalities which are you know there's a there's a League of Legends player called called Reckless and um, who's still playing now. You know, he's Swedish, he's got, you know, sleeve tattoos, he's, he's you know, could be a model. He did a, a Ralph Lauren campaign uh, last year with um, uh, the England rugby player Mario Toje and Spurs mid- midfielder Hume um, Son. So, you know, you've kind of got some of these people who, who really do cross over into that more mainstream. And I think that is only going to sort of benefit 
you know, gaming and esports um, more as a whole. And then you've got um, a player fanatic in their Valorant team called Boaster, um, who I actually used to work with at, at, at Excel very closely. And he's a super talented gamer, but he's also, you know, sings and he dances and he's kind of the kind of whole package. And again, more people like that coming out is only going to sort of help break down some of, the, some of these stereotypes. Additionally to that, you know, I think a lot of brands see this as purely digital, which, you know, don't get me wrong, you know, the last two years or two and a half years has obviously made it, you know, much more digitally focused as we've not been able to do events. But, you know, having those physical events are, are only going to be more and more important moving forward. And I was lucky enough to be in Paris in 2019 for the League of Legends World Championship final. And there was 15,000 people um, in an arena in Paris screaming and, and going absolutely crazy. And then, you know, if, if you look back at, uh, you know, a year or two um, before that, you know, the final was in Beijing and they, you know, filled the bird's nest with League of Legends fans as well. So, again, those physical events and, 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 and articulating the opportunities to brands, what they can do, you know, more experientially, um, again, is super interesting for them. Episode 107 saw Paula Beadle from Caravel Marketing join the show to discuss current sponsorship trends. We generally accept that sponsorship a lot of the time is about helping brands connect with and access audiences that they would probably otherwise find really difficult to access and engage with, or maybe they can't find a more economical way to do it. In the past, sponsorship has been, and I say at times, but I think we generally accept that a lot of the time, has been more of a a transactional advertising brand slapping exercise. How do you frame how powerful sponsorship really is above and beyond those those things today because it's definitely changed and it's become multifaceted in terms of not just the power but the outcomes it can deliver organizations there certainly has been a rapid evolution of sponsorship and that will continue and so i'd like to say it this way when sponsorship marketing is done right, it is the most effective way to make a meaningful connection with the audience, right? When sponsorship is done right, it brings multiple marketing platforms and communication channels together around a singular idea, right? And I think it's it's important that sponsorship, that it's understood, sponsorship is no longer a marketing tactic. It really is a business strategy. Sponsorship, when done right, supports the overall business strategy around community involvement and sustainability efforts, employee engagement, social issues. So I think the best sponsorship programs, they do improve the audience experience by solving a problem or by elevating uh, the experience. And that's why sponsorship marketing is so powerful today. We went inside data use in sponsorship evaluation and measurement in episode 108 with Christian Fitzia from Kindred Group. I'd imagine that a lot of rights holders would be trying to engage with you as a betting brand because they're very prominent in the sponsorship space and they want to enter into partnerships. It kind of feels weird if sports organisations don't have a gambling partner these days. It's hard to think of one that doesn't. How do you manage the evaluation process with so many people really wanting to get a a gambling organisation on board as a partner? There's definitely a lot of the proposals coming across. I I mean... Personally, the first role for me within a brand in the industry, it's been such a good learning experience to see all of these proposals coming through, get exposed to so many different types of deals, so many different areas of the industry. So from that point of view, it's been great. And yeah, we've obviously had to come up with a, an important element of evaluating those proposals because we want to take a data-driven approach to these deals. And 
that's I guess a primary focus of my role with it in the first place within Kindred. I joined as a sponsorship analyst, and it's because we wanted to take a data-driven approach to our sponsorships. And yeah, I mean, in terms of the evaluation process, we have a combination of factors which we can look into. So we have a couple of reports which we can run, one with um, Bob with both data providers, one with Nielsen and then one with Hookit. And we basically benchmark our values within that proposal against how we can extract maximal value and if it's um, a good fit for us as a brand, uh, as, a, as a company as a whole. Um, so I think, yeah, the example for Nielsen Sports will break down a proposal and we'll have a full report where, which we can dig into with the market and look at proposals in depth and then Within the social media element, obviously the digital element is becoming a lot more more important. We utilize Hookit scorecards, which help us extract a top line view of of our um, potential sponsor and take a look into um, the performance there. One area I wanted to make note of, which where that's been really useful, is um, within the the North American market, where we're obviously broken down into key states and we can't activate from a national basis. So it's important for us to look at the geographical breakdown. So within those scorecards, there's a sample of following and we, we're able to see the percentage of following in different states, different cities, and we can really target those um, potential new partners who have a strong basis in our key states and our key cities. And yeah, I guess from a wider basis, we're really fortunate to be a digital-only brand. So we actually have a lot of first-party data that we sit on, um, which obviously gives us a key indication around a potential partner's performance. Their Their performance on... Uh, sports betting. So we can dig into the data, see who's betting on what, how, how are they performing, and if it's relevant for our for our existing customers. So we're, yeah, we're fortunate to sit on all of that data across our key markets. Eddie Fitzgibbon from SRT took us inside crypto, NFTs, and fan tokens in sponsorship in episode 109. I think you made a really good point earlier, and I haven't heard anybody make it before when you say there is a delineation of teams having fans and brands having customers. With that in mind, where do you see opportunities for brands and rights holders to work together to create NFTs? Now, I know you're a Liverpool supporter, Eddie, so I've I've jimmied a little bit of a Liverpool angle in here for you, and I've got an example because to date, that work has been pretty straightforward the way brands have been brought in by rights holders in this space, particularly with the NFTs. For example, Liverpool, they released the LFC Heroes Club, which gave fans the opportunity to purchase animated cartoon-style digital artworks of, I think it was 23 players and, and also the manager, Jurgen Klopp. And that included existing sponsorship branding from Nike and Standard Chartered on the shirts that were in those digital assets. So, to be fair, that's just digital memorabilia, so to speak, limited edition artwork. It, of course, it's not to be sneezed at because it was reported that Liverpool would earn around about £8.5 million from the exercise. So clearly it's one worth undertaking. But it isn't one that can simply be rolled out year after year after year. It's not going to be a repeatable process, those same similar style uh, digital assets. So what sort of opportunities do you see for brands and rights holders to work together to create NFTs that really do innovate? There hasn't been that many good examples of it with brands and rights holders doing it well so far. I think, again, brands are a little bit reluctant to go to too hard at this type of stuff right now for the reasons discussed earlier. Um, outside of Nike and their digital shoes with Reflect, I haven't seen brands do too well in NFTs yet, even though other ones like Taco Bell and others 
have have done it. I think brands again are just dipping their toe in and seeing what works and what doesn't because they've arguably got more to lose than rights holders. So I think the softly, softly approach that you know Liverpool and Standard Chartered did, for example, with with this um, project is probably the opportunity right now. Moving forward, I think you know things like um, kind of membership style opportunities um, that NFTs um, can bring. So access to discounts at brands, um, online store for holding the rights holder NFT. Um, access to content that is some sort of sponsorship brand if NFT holders. This is nothing, nothing new. Um, the key is having the NFT work as a form of extra utility for the fan across all of the sponsors that the rights holders have. And going back to the point around kind of what, what NFTs bring and can do, again, that'll bring you, if you've got to hold an NFT, you can go into a gated community, um, gated Discord channel, and that's where the extra utility and the extra benefit of holding these NFTs for the for the rights holders and therefore the brands can be used. You might get an extra 10% off of the shop than a, um, a an existing member might have. It might give you first primary preference for a ticket or a seat upgrade at a venue. I mean, the, 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 the utility is really, um, the world's a kind of oyster in that kind of thing. So um, it's not too dissimilar to what's happening in the sports world at the moment, but there's just that again, because it's on the blockchain, because it can be um, it can be gated communities. There's much more wider scope for rights holders and brands to do interesting collaborations. Um, just on the just just what I've got you, I mean, on the Liverpool heroes thing, um, you know, as I said, I've I've got one, and I've and I've got a Jurgen Klopp, um, which is pretty rare, so I'm happy with that. But it was kind of it wasn't. It wasn't done terribly well, um, and there was, was a bit of fan backlash. So, firstly, they did it through Sotheby's, um, and although the minting process was easy and it was great um, and easy to mint, it wasn't a great look when a supposedly you know working class club is partnering with a multinational such as Sotheby's. Um, just, just the, the yeah the optics on that weren't great. And secondly, they got their marketing and drop mechanics all all wrong. Um, so they were meant to sell, I think, 170 on thousand NFTs, and they only sold about around about 10,000. Um, now this can be the issue where the rights holder thinks more about the commercial opportunity than the education, and rights holders, you know, everyone sees the dollar signs at the moment with Topshot and everything like that, but they've really got to think about why are we doing this? Are we doing this to make money, or are we doing this to add value to our? Um, to our fans, and if if it's about the former, you shouldn't be doing it. It's about the the second part. Then let's think a little bit more about why, and then how that looks. And look, I'm still holding that clock. Um, they've got they've added some utility and some benefits in, and I'm quite happy with it now. But you know, this is the thing. There's there's so many opportunities out there for right told to do this poorly. So they just need to think about it a little bit more because the the, the NFT market is getting more mature by the day. In episode 110, I'd be keeping a list of my all-time favorite pieces of advice from the show, and I pulled those together into a show. There was 14 of them. So for this best of episode, it's hard not to revisit Burger King's sponsorship of Stevenage FC when Alex Tunbridge, the then CEO of Stevenage FC, came on the show, and that was way back in episode 89. 
This next question is going to be a bit of a long one as I collect my thoughts and, and sort of phrase it for you. So so bear with me, but I want to pick up on that point around you having to hold your nerve because you knew what was going on and there was some questions around kits and sponsors and things like that because Burger King themselves have said that when the sponsorship was announced that many thought sponsoring Stevenage FC at the bottom of England football's fourth division at the time that it was a bad investment and in uh, a media release on your own website, it said, quote, Burger King's global head of brand marketing, Marcelo Pasqua, said, we are thrilled to support Stevenage Football Club over the next two seasons. Over 265 million people play football around the world and the passion for the game is unparalleled. At Burger King, we share that passion, not only for the big teams, but also for the smaller ones that are poised for something big, end quote. That would have been read by many as a pretty bland quote about a new sponsorship. Football's big. Everyone's passionate about it. We want to support football. It's kind of stock standard stuff. But the line, poised for something big, now seems prophetic. You couldn't give too much away about the long game, as you said before. So what did you say to people when they asked, why would Burger King sponsor Stevenage FC? So we knew at the time that the goal of Burger King working with us was to turn us from a small team in the real world to the biggest team online. We always had a very clear understanding of that objective. I think on a local level, and, and certainly in the short term, I think when people were saying to us, well, why would Burger King sponsor Stevenage? We'd kind of had those uh, moments that had taken place in the months before, bringing a world title fight to the stadium, changing our brand. For us, it was all about as a small club that is in a very highly saturated area in England in terms of football clubs, particularly around London, um, Tottenham's very close to us, Arsenal, Watford, Luton Town, all of which have had very good seasons recently, expanded their stadiums, brought in new season ticket holders. We have to find a way to um, be slightly different. We have, to, we have to know what that niche is. So for us, we'd come up with this mantra of, right, well, let's be the club that tries and does things a little bit differently. Let's be a club that's connected to its community. And let's be a club that anybody can have access to. Anybody can speak to a player. Anybody can speak to myself. Anybody can speak to the chairman. Let's really play on that. And uh, for us, we, we felt it was really important that we bought, we improved our commercial outputs as a club. There was possibly some low-hanging fruit that we could go and get. And also we had to change people's perception of us. And so how we sold it to the supporters was that by bringing a blue chip company was the first step in us changing the perception that other people had of us on a local level and on a national level and eventually on an international level. Now that has probably gone full circle now. We're probably equally as held on a, an international and national level in some sectors as we are on a local level here. So I think one of the key things for us has been the interaction we've received since the, the campaign from people all over the world, from fellow peers at other football clubs, to other sports, NFL, NHL, NBA clubs, all getting in contact with us, recognising what we've done. So I think from a local level now, people are starting to understand that we were prepared to be bold, we were prepared to take that leap of faith. And um, now those local clubs want to come and get involved with us and, and, and ride that wave that we're on. So it's, it's a real positive as well for the local businesses and local community. In episode 111, James Durbin, Chief Commercial Officer, took us inside sponsorship at Rugby Australia. 
So, James, that all happened only four months after starting in the role that you announced Land Rover had renewed their partnership as the official vehicle uh, until the end of 2024. And so it's a three-year deal and it extends the relationship, as you mentioned, but it extends it to seven seasons with Land Rover first joining the Rugby Australia family back in 2018. A little bit of a curly one for you. Do you think being new to the role when the negotiations were happening, do you think that helped in terms of resetting and refreshing the partnership? The reason I ask is that because no partnership is perfect. We've all heard horror stories of where things don't happen well, they don't go to plan, a sponsor just walks because they weren't feeling as though they were getting the return on objective or return on investment. But for want of a better phrase, anything that may have not been perfect in the past was was pretty much out of your control. So did you think that helped or or, or was there a little bit of unpacking without throwing sponsors and and previous staff under the bus? (laughs) No, I certainly won't do that. But I I think you're right in in, in your summary in that things can get a little bit stale from time to time and a, a fresh set of eyes is always valuable. And I remember sitting in the first week or two in the role and I was sitting with the marketing director at Cadbury, who's our principal partner, and we were talking about exactly this. Uh, a new set of eyes is, is good and let's, uh, an ability to refresh, reset, as the term you used, um, is a positive thing. And, and he coined the phrase, as we were chatting, it's the purity of first sight. And so coming into the organisation, having a look at the deals that have been struck, whether it be Land Rover, whether it be Cadbury, whether any of our partners, and having that first look at it and saying, hang on, that just doesn't look look right, or we could do that better, or why are we doing it like this? And if the answer ever comes back, well, that's because how we did it last year, um, generally that's not going to be the right answer. And so we need to take another look at it. So that side of things, I think coming in new and fresh has been valuable. You know, having standard rights and benefits within these packages, uh, of which Land Rover had some, Cadbury had some, or we've even changed them this year, mid-agreement, mid and a few other partners have. Which I've sat with them and said, do you actually want these rights? And invariably, I said, no, they're just part of the package. And, and so we've taken them away, bundled them up, and, and we can sell them to someone else, or kept them to keep a cleaner space within within our environment. So it definitely helps. But I think the other part, uh, maybe just to make comment on on the the historic nature of the relationship, I think coming in you, you also need to take responsibility, irrespective of whether you were in the hot seat or not, for for things that have happened in the past, and that and they can't be ignored. And and if there's some make good that needs needs to happen, and or or some appreciation of what has happened such as a partner supporting you incredibly well during uh, an amazingly tough two years in sport being 2020 and 2021, those things can't be ignored coming into the organisation. So I've been very mindful of that, of partners who have supported us uh, through thick and thin. Um, And we have a couple of partners within our women's program that have absolutely done that. Build Corp comes to mind, who have been an incredible supporter of women's rugby for many, many years. And... I think those, um, it's a responsibility of someone coming in new to not forget those investments that they've made over time uh, in the good and the bad times. Ryan Nicewender took us inside Disabled Athlete Sponsorship in episode 112.
Well, speaking of the value proposition, it's a great segue into the question that I want to ask next, which is around how brands often sponsor rights holders or organizations or athletes. And those rights holders usually have a whole suite of rights or benefits that they build into sponsorship packages. And when you're talking about working with a brand being sponsored, what are you typically positioning that you can give them in return for their support? What is that value proposition? Well, I think you bring up a great point in the fact that everybody is different and you have to be able to position yourself uniquely um, to differentiate yourself. I think one of the biggest things is that I'm a, a public speaker. I do corporate keynotes all the time. And to not only speak to my experiences as an elite athlete and to be able to bring people and use stories to illustrate strategies to help people reach their un- and organizations reach their untapped potential, I can do that. That's a huge value proposition. And I think that 10, 15, 20 years ago, people were looking at people like people with disabilities and they were saying like, oh, that's nice that like they're getting out and they're going to the gym or that's cool that like they get to hop in a chair and do something that they like. Like that's so inspirational. And now it's like, oh, Ryan's an amazing public speaker. He has so much value. His experience, not only at the pinnacle of sport, but in his adversity that he's had to face from with his disability and the lessons that he's learned and the way that he's had to grow up and the perspective that he has. I mean, there's 1.3 billion people with a disability that make up $13 trillion of disposable income. And that market size is larger than China. So if you think about people invest in what they see and when they see companies investing in Either if you have a disability and you see a company investing in people with disabilities, you're much like you're more likely to use that company, right? Same thing with a family. I can tell you for a fact, Toyota, what they did and what they were able to do to not only support me, but to support my family. My family looks at they're getting a new car, and my dad's like, Well, I'm getting a RAV4 because he's associated with someone that has a disability. That's where the $13 trillion of disposable income comes from. So I think. People like to see themselves reflected in what companies are investing in. And for the first time, the big billion, trillion dollar, big, like widespread numbers are are creating an impact. And it's not just an inspiring story, but it's a value proposition that can drive a huge ROI and to to round out um, companies that can differentiate themselves. Cause I, like I said, at the, at the beginning of it, not everyone's doing this. And if you get on the front of this wave, it's going to create huge impact and it's going to allow you to get in front of this before other people do. We went inside 2023 planning considerations in episode 113 with Dan Collier Hill from Mediacom. Talk to me about one of the most important parts of sponsorship and that is budgets because They're both empowering in terms of giving us money to actually activate a sponsorship, but also restrictive because we don't have unlimited budget, obviously. What's happening on the budget front at the moment and what can listeners take into their own planning for next year? What a fun conversation to pick this back up on budgets. It's like literally the worst thing that we all talk about. But look, how many times have you seen a partnership opportunity um, that gets tossed up in a, in a meeting room or just in a session or, or even casually. Um, and it's a great one, but it gets shut down with the, oh, we don't have budget, which has to be the most frustrating answer to to any idea. And, you know, it, I think that's usually coupled with, oh, let's look at it next year because 
our media activity is already locked in or we're already committed to something. Um, I think that the challenge with setting out annual plans is we do this sort of six to 12 months in advance. We're totally unaware of any cultural trend that could come to life later in the year that might actually help us address a genuine business challenge. Um, you know, case in point, think about TikTok. Um, that's literally flipped our world inside out. So I think, you know, in principle, reacting to something live can be far more effective than trying to force perception or behavioral change. And I think sometimes that can fall into a bit of a, you know, is that sponsorship? Is it PR? Is it broader marketing? Like where does that, where does that sit and what role does it need to play? But I think, you know, it, it probably comes down to if we're reacting to something and if we're trying to use budget that isn't, you know, pre-planned, we kind of go, okay, does this, opportunity live in mainstream or does it live in sort of a subculture um you know what are the entry points to where we're trying to talk to these people and how agile are we enough to you know produce content or activations to capitalize on it because the other thing that you know might be a great idea we might have money to do it but you know do we actually have the capabilities to give it the attention and the love that it probably deserves um so like all good questions and probably an absolute roundabout or pure ramble to answer your question. But I think when we're looking at budgets for the rest of the year, we should take a, a leaf out of the whole sort of test and learn concept when we're thinking about budgets. That reactive mentality allows us to jump onto a trend or an idea to actually drive relevance at a specific point in time. So I guess the, the challenge for sponsorship is how we react um, requires publishers, platforms, rights holders um, to be able to sell the opportunity effectively because, you know, like we were talking about before where, you know, everything sort of tends to look and feel the same. It's because the assets that are being sold are all exactly the same. You know, if you removed the team colours and the logos and just called them property A, B and C, um, you know, we'd probably struggle to to delineate between the, the difference. So, I think not getting locked into standard assets or packages is really important for, you know, being able to have reactive budgets. Um, and then how we activate within them probably needs to be reflective of the trend itself um, and how the, or our target audience reacts to it. So, you know, we, we sometimes fall into the trap of, well, we're going to talk to, you know, Gen Z as an example, and, and this is what we want them to do at a particular point in time. Um, they might not react that way. So I think, you know, uh, uh, probably another conversation we go back to is that whole sort of, is it what we're trying to say or is it what we, um, our audience is trying to say or, or respond to? So again, probably more ramble from me. So the trends we react to is probably going to dictate what we act around, activate around and how much budget we spend on. Um, sometimes it's mass market appeal. Other times it's trying to find out, you know, where that next share of growth is going to come. Scott Tilton from Hook It, acquired by Core took us inside how brands can optimise their sponsorship portfolio in episode 114. I like that attitude of, of always working to try and be better, trying to move the industry forward. It does sound as though it's always going to be an ongoing crusade, so to speak, because technology changes, market changes, and we have to react. However, to be fair, Scott, there are plenty of brands out there doing it well what brands can you share with us who are doing it well on this front and, and what are they doing that makes them good is it a focus on technology or is it attitude or is it a, a whole of business approach what what are they doing that makes them good i won't call out any specific brands but there are a number of brands that we work with now that um, are very focused on getting a sponsorship framework in place and 
it, the concept of a framework is it's, it's incredibly robust and it's a way to organize all these disparate data sources and and start putting data behind the, the most critical KPIs that they're looking at measuring and evaluating. Um, so this has become really a mission critical thing for major brands in terms of understanding like all the moving parts of the sponsorship. So as part of this framework, it kind of starts with leadership and, and people determining and establishing clear goals and objectives and KPIs that that they know are most critical for their brand. Um, and then a lot of what we're doing now is, is working with brands to develop scoring models to better evaluate not just their current partners, but also potential partners to ensure that the sponsorships are, are meeting like predefined KPIs. Um, so, you know, once these types of elements are in place, you know, really collaborating with the partners is, is also incredibly key so that there's clear alignment and collaboration to focus on these goals and objectives. But it really starts with this framework and this, you know, data first mindset from the organization on how they're going to put a really solid evaluation framework in place to make sure that, you know, one of their current partners working, but every future partner that they begin to evaluate and ultimately work with, like they're all kind of rowing in the same direction and they know how these, how these deals are contributing to their bottom line. In episode 115, Adam Ferrier from Thinkabell joined us to take us inside how to be innovative and creative in sponsorship. Adam, what place does innovation and creativity have when we don't have any ideas at a certain point in time? How do we come up with stuff when we're placed on the spot? Maybe we have a new sponsor, a new opportunity. Okay, everybody hit me with your ideas. How are we going to make this sponsorship work? What activations are we going to have? And everyone sits there going, Oh, I don't really have much to offer, boss. How do we get over that hump? So most ideas are developed by people receiving a brief, leaving that situation, creating some kind of connections in the mind, and then coming back to the problem. And so you can, if you, you can fast track that process by hearing the brief, put yourself in a position or involve yourself with some form of stimulus that's likely to create interesting connections in your head. And then, and then you know, whenever you're ready or, or don't even think about it, the brain will do the work for you and connect the dots for you when, when you're not expecting it. So if the brand you're working on is really, really rough and they want a solution to make the brand really, really smooth, just surround yourself in the world of smooth in some way or read up on smooth or play around is smooth. Don't try to solve a problem. Just try to think about the world of smooth. And then later, just by the brain works, the connection will get made. You go, oh, shit, hang on. It could be whatever. So that's, that's how I'll just, that's how I'll describe it to someone. Get yourself away from the problem, but where you put yourself matters because that's where the brain is going to start to form its little connections in new and novel ways. And finally, in episode 116, Jonathan Harris from SRI gave us an update on all things employment, recruitment, and retention in the sponsorship industry. You touched on a couple of key things there, and so a, a follow-on or continuation to that question is, and without trying to make the question too negative, what are some of the mistakes that you see rights holders or brands even making when recruiting for sponsorship and commercial-related roles? There's been a good deal of inflation in the marketplace around that kind of classic commercial manager, business development manager, um, head of commercial um, type type role. 
uh, in the sponsorship space. And I think um, something that we've observed and been a little bit surprised about where, where, where good candidates in that role who might normally be in at the 130, 140, 150K role are, are now at the sort of 170, 180, 190K mark. Um, and I think companies might underestimate that um, uh, and pitch the role at the wrong level. Um, I think, I think, and I made this a variation upon this point in the 17 uh, interview, but I think sometimes they don't, sometimes it's a, it, 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 an organization has seen underperformance in their, in their head of commercial and their BDM or sponsorship area. And they think if they just make a transition and change, it's going to solve the problem when actually some of the issues may lay beyond the role itself in terms of an organization, knowing themselves, knowing their data, knowing their brand and, you know, and giving them the tools and the content to go out and find a sponsor. Um, so I'd, I'd say, I'd say an organization should look at, look at themselves as much as the failure of a specific individual, you know, before going to market um, and make sure that they get what they want right uh, um, through, through that briefing stage. And sometimes that's best done with an organization such as ours, because we can comment upon that. We can, we can look at, you know, if we look at an NRL club, we can look at what the eels are doing versus what the rabbitos are doing, or, you know, we can help and advise and, and, um, and, and, and sort of demonstrate where, where things might need to change. As I said at the start of the show, I feel very privileged to be able to welcome so many amazing guests onto the podcast and chat to them about their work. And despite the ongoing challenges faced by the world in 2022, the year still gave us another round of great guests and episodes full of excellent advice, insights and experiences. And so I hope this episode helps set you up and inspires you for an amazing 2023. And I look forward to bringing you many more great guests this year. If you'd love a shout out, just want to connect and say hi, just like those at the start of the show, I'd totally love to hear from you. I get a real kick out of it, so please do connect with me on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N. That's a wrap for episode 117. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship, brought to you by Core Software. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, eBooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.